The Protect Your Neck Podcast, UFC 252 Breakdown, picks, plays, and whatever else comes our way. Let's go to work. What is up, my friends? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Tom. Analyst is where you can find over at MMA Junkie as well as LineMovement.com. But on this year's program, the Protect Your Neck Podcast, we break down high-level MMA, and that's what we're going to do here today. Tonight, whenever you're listening to this, hopefully it's before the fight, recording this just before weigh-in time on Friday, West Coast, here in the state, that the fights UFC 252 that we'll be breaking down will be taking place. So you excuse the butt rock intro there. I wanted to change it up with some Life of Agony. Uh, Underground was feeling a little nostalgic. And Dan Tommy's playing a band back in the day. And the first band we played with was this band from Denver, Colorado called Killing Kings. So the show was in Utah. And they covered CCR, which was fun. So it was random for it being, you know, being a hardcore metal, heavier metal uh, kind of hardcore band. And we were a punk hardcore band. Uh, but when they came to Vegas, they covered, um, wow, and now I can't even, <laughs> Life of Agony Underground, as I just said it off the top. And it was great, because it's got all the two-step parts, sing-alongs, got the heavy chug-chug breakdowns, and that's kind of like this card. It's got a little bit of everything, good, bad, and the ugly. We'll get to that, as per usual, in these breakdown shows. Um, check the timestamps if you are short on time, as I tend to make you be short on time since I record these so late in the week. Uh, I always put in the show notes, whether you're listening on iTunes, thank you for the positive ratings and reviews and seeing more trickle in there, or on YouTube, thank you for the likes. I know it gets up on YouTube late, especially on days like this. Uh, th- thank you for subscribing to my Measly channel. I think we just finally hit 200 subscribers. So <laughs> feel free to help Dan Tom out there, although I'm not really uh, making... Sorry, although I'm not making good on that by, you know, being late with these. But, uh, yeah, um, thank you for that. But, yeah, always in the show notes, I always mark where the breakdowns start. And uh, at the end, if you're really short on time or you just don't want to listen to me and my r- raspy-going voice, uh, which I don't blame you, just go right to the end. I always recap my picks and plays. Um, speaking of which... Saw I saw my dude over there, Ed Gallo, being you know a responsible human being, uh, looking out for his health, and uh, he took off from one of my favorite podcasts over there from the thefightsite.com, uh, their podcast feed. Go follow them, subscribe. But I does a, a he does a wrestling podcast which I, I like, and um, you know his voice was like not feeling well. I was like, I'm gonna give it a break. I'm like, or something maybe his respiratory or something. But I was like, that's what I should do. I'm like, nope. I just Got to trudge through and make my listeners suffer uh, with my um, uh, bad voice and poor impressions that, uh, you know, uh, substitute his analysis. So uh, with on that note, let's uh, do a quick recap um, of just results, and then we'll push through. And uh, just real quick, last week, thank you guys for the birthday love. Last week I was recording on Friday as well. I was trying not to because it was my birthday, but you guys definitely softened the blow of a day I'm not very much a fan of. Um especially lately, but uh, you, you guys are awesome, man. I'm not sure what I would do without you also, so thank you. Um, Bellator 243 happened. All I wrote for my recap notes was Chandler and Big Dick, which um, means t- Tim Johnson, by the way. That's not me, folks. That's that's the name the MMA analysis gave him, so you, you go take it up with them. Uh, <laughs> I'm just towing the line. Uh, Jesus, Dan. Uh, but yeah, uh Tim Johnson was the only play that night. He cashed, so that was that was nice, albeit without controversy. Like uh, Tim Johnson said, hey, it's better to be lucky than good. Gotta love that attitude, right? And uh, Chandler won by switching to southpaw. Stopped old Bendo Henderson. Um, didn't see that coming, although I picked Chandler. Picked my decision. Chandler went in looking to win by decision, and he got the knockout. It's like a golf swing, you know? You, know, you don't... Uh, the best shots are the ones you don't really feel. 
course, I would like to see Chandler go to UFC. Um, UFC Vegas 6 happened the, the following night. Went 7-5 and five overall, which sadly seems to be the average, like in these pandemic-like picks. Um, 0-3 in straight plays. Yeah, I took a bath. I mean, well, I think I had like three winning, or not even three winning, like technically perfect weeks, like... I had a bad, I, I got a bad feeling about this. I got a bad feeling about this, Sarge. Uh, <laughs> wow, Dan, Platoon, 1988 reference, relevant. Um, I knew it was going to get washed, so washed I did. Uh, hopefully you took that uh, parlay uh, that I gave on here. I can't even remember what the fuck it was. But uh, so I'm going to pull up uh, results here. Um, I think it was, who um, was the two-piece? Oh, yeah, the Middle Eastern parlay cash. That was nice, right? Got some Benil and Nazrat, so that that helped me like break even. But I, uh, behind the scenes, but for what I officially put out there for line movement, I got washed. And what the hell was the prop that I played? Excuse me. Oh yeah, uh, Hack Munoz over. It went over. So, congrats to you guys who uh, listen to the podcast and get get the complete. Complete plays, but still, uh, I like to put my best ones forward, or you know, the most juicy ones. And, and uh, Zed did not heat. Dana White's Contender Series 28 happened. Uh, I don't make bets on those, but you can always check out my grading the winners article over in a junkie. Uh, he had uh, Dustin Stolzfus upsetting Joe Piper in the main event. Dude's really in a rep in Germany. May, may or may not have thrown up a questionable hand signal on his way out. Uh, not throwing shade, uh, you know. Happy everyone got in, I guess, but we also know how that goes, so good, the best of luck to him. Adrian Yanez, I did want to see go in over defeating Brady Huang. Of course, you know, part of me was, you know, rooting for the for the Asian-American who, who grew up doing martial arts because he got bullied. I'm like, ah, that's a soft spot. But Yanez, man, that guy's no, no joke, and I really was impressed with him, so looking forward to seeing more of him. Corey McKenna defeated Vanessa Demopoulos. Um, yeah, me to song. Uh, she showed some subtle things, the Welsh girl. Uh, Welsh represents well, man. You Welsh people should be proud. You've got some fighters there. Uh, TJ Laramie punches his long-awaited ticket over Daniel Swain. Um, yeah, never, you know, it was clear the dude was done, but, uh, you know, could have been a real injury, so you gotta be, be reserved, like they said on the commentary, with the, with the whole quitting thing. Impa Kasangane defeated Anthony Adams. Uh, quiet but impressive performance. I like the body work to takedowns. Um, she's getting Maki Patolo, so it's going to be some body work and wrestling in that fight. All right. Um, and, yeah, uh, UFC Vegas 6. Yes, of course, Derek Lewis defeated Alexi Olenek. Yeah. That was an awesome walkout, by the way. Shouts to Luke Thomas for putting together that uh, Tops Drop remix. Uh, shouts to Fat Pat. Um... And Alexi Sexy Olenek, man. Oh. I always love that guy. Tough to see him go down. Uh, Chris Weidman defeated Omari Ahmedov. A Durka Durka. Uh, yeah, man. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It was, 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 was hats off to Weidman. Was wrong. No excuses. Got washed on my place. Uh, but at the same time, like, oh, there were a lot of things that were right. Like, I was fading guys with big weight cuts. And both Darren Stewart and Chris Weidman admit after the fight that it was both their toughest weight cuts. So I was like, oh, well, I guess I wasn't that wrong on that. Um, and props to Weidman, even though he looked like he just completely shot on the feet. And he looks... I agree with Tommy Elliott, who says he pretty much looks 70% shot. I think that's fair. Um, but yeah, you know, props to him. He didn't get dropped, uh, albeit, you know, those of us defending Omari, Omari's uh, record of not dropping people... Um, doesn't look good, and you can't really defend him off that. And uh, old Omari gassing, you know, and, and it came really came down to this that one takedown at the end. I thought they were both done, but I figured um, Omari would fight a little better tired. Chris goes for the takedown. He defends it, and I was like, oh, that's good. That's so, you know, debilitating, you know, defending a takedown shot. That was probably Chris's only good shot. He gets up. Omari hits him right to the body after that. I was like, oh, that's so perfect. I love that. Make After someone tries to wrestle and you give him a body shot, you know, again, pop for a popular example, a la Conor Mendez um, with the front teep. 
Uh, and I was like, oh, he's definitely done. And then Weidman shoots again. I'm like, no way Weidman has energy for a shot. Okay, if Omari defends this, Weidman is definitely done. And I think it came down to that takedown. And unfortunately for Omari, and Omari better is he didn't defend it and, and was ridden out the round. So uh, props to Weidman. Um, but, yeah, that'll be one, you know, if anyone's sour on, they could probably get back because sadly Weidman wants the wants the best. He put everybody on notice. I don't know about that. Darren Stewart defeated Maki Patolo, getting his first submission whenever. I mean, who the F was going to see that? You know, someone was telling me we don't feel so bad. Like, <laughs> you know, the English guy who has no submissions all of a sudden got a submission. And it sucked because Maki Patolo, as um, Zane Simon noted, shouts to Zane, was like, you know, he's got kind of poor defensive wherewithal. And I, I also noted that too on, on, on my breakdown talking about him, which is why I thought it was KO or bust for Stewart. But Maki comes out there and actually starts showing like more defensive wherewithal. Maybe not as much head movement, but his footwork. He's striking in and out. He's throwing leg kick. He's fighting really smart. And I was like, oh, wow. Like he's showing a new fold, uh, frustrating, look like he may have hurt Stewart, right? And then when he goes for the takedown, maybe it's because it's his old habits and or, again, he's like, oh, this guy's got nothing for me on the ground. He's got no submissions. All he's got is a basic get-up game, right? Nope. It's the high elbow guillotine and um, the way they were at the fence. It was just perfect opportunistic submission. So hats off to Darren Stewart who paid a nice tribute to his friend. That was a sad story. Yana Kunitskaya defeated Julija Storielrenko. Uh Yeah, that was a washing. Um, Grats to people. Too. I was kind of scared on that. Like I was like thinking about changing my pick almost. I'm like, oh, did I pick the wrong person? But nope, Kunitskaya was the right pick. And grats to people who cashed that. I think... Um, uh, shouts to Rob Brown Benning. I think he cashed that over there. Benil Dariush defeated Scott Holtzman. That was a feel-good one. And, oh, my goodness, he had to knock Scotty Holtzman out a bunch of times. Again, that was one maybe where fading guys had to make the big weight cut. You know, didn't help as much either uh, for Scott Holtzman. He made the weight, but it's a tough weight cut for him. He admits it himself. Tim Means dusted off and defeats Lariano Staropoli. I was glad I didn't play it, although the pick was was wrong. Um, good on Tim Means. This week on Hack. Hack Perez defeated Munoz. Almost got him out of there. Munoz has got a chin, but he's really going to need more experience and not have to rely on that. Kevin Holland defeated Joaquin Buckley. Classic Kevin Holland performance. He's probably not going to get a lot of credit for. He's got the Bobby Green effect where, you know... It'll do the dangly arms and trash talk thing, and people will just kind of write him off and, and have it burnt in their head that the whole performance was that way. But really, he was actually doing some really slick counter punching and rolling with the punches from a hard hitting Joaquin Buckley, who I hope to see back. Andrew Sanchez defeated Wellington Terminal. Another one, uh, the pick was wrong, but I'm glad I stayed away from the pick or the play. Uh, and good on Andrew Sanchez, you know? He really put it together. In my defense, that is something I, I did warn about in the podcast, which was why I didn't play him, even though I picked against him. Um, Gavin Tucker defeated Justin James. Good on Gavin Tucker. Again, even though I played and picked the opposite way, um, doesn't mean I don't like Gavin Tucker. I'm just biased with my boy. So uh, I warned you all on that, and I didn't like where the line was moving. Most of the time, the line movement's been wrong, and I kind of played against it again this week. Yusuf Salaud, uh defeated uh, Slippery Pete, which... Uh, Sounds like it would have been my nickname in high school. Uh, I don't know why I said that. I used to have a roommate that used to say that joke, anything like, oh, that was my nickname in high school, like anything semi-sexual sounding. Anyway, sorry, folks. Ah, I don't have the voice to be drifting off. I'm crawling past the finish line as usual. Part of the reason why I put it off till today, because b- last night I wasn't so much tired, but my voice was done. I was trying to, trying to... I don't know. I don't know what to do, folks. I have to learn sign language. Stop talking. <clears throat> Aaron Rivera defeated Ali Alcasey. Didn't watch that one too closely. All right, and that's it for the recap. What's the time on there? 14 minutes. Okay, not too bad. Zion. Oh, wow, didn't even not load up. Cool. All right, folks. UFC 252. Headlined by Stipe Miocic, the champion, uh, and Daniel Cormier, former champion, opened at minus 110. Money slightly trickled in on Cormier, where it so far has stayed as he sits at minus 115, slightly favored over Miocic, currently minus 105. Um, In-depth breakdown, 
go over to MMA Junkie. Uh, I'm going to try not to get too hung up on this. A lot of talking points have been said. A lot of talking points, I imagine, because they're everywhere, really. I mean, this fight could go everywhere. Um, you know, uh, me and Dan Levy were definitely you know, waxing on some different different outcomes. Um, on our uh, shout-out to the Line Movement betting show. But it's like year 2020, man. I'm picking against fighters I never picked against before. And although I picked against Daniel Cormier before, there's a guy out there named John Jones. Um, I've never picked against him outside of that. And I am here. I picked Cormier to win the first time, albeit not by knockout. And the second time, both in the premise that I thought he was the better built five-round fighter and the better wrestler. Now, one of those is true. The other, though, I had to re-examine after the second fight, which is the five-round fighter. And even looking back to five-round fights he won in his prime, even that were in heavyweight, you know, go back to the Josh Farnett strike force. Even though he only technically loses one of those rounds, a four and five on the judges' scorecards, there's a dramatic drop in the output. Um, and that follows through with Jones. And yes, he was able to dig it out at the fifth with Gus, but from the third to the fourth was not good. Um, and yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of, uh, my, my re-examination. And as you get older, plus wrestling in general, even when you're wrestling in your prime, Chael Sonnen says, and I, I pointed it out with my Habib breakdowns, uh, Cormier's AKA counterpart, a guy in his prime, a lighter weight class guy who should have better cardio, right? But as back to what Chael said, even the best in the world can only wrestle for three rounds efficiently. Like really do it. Unless you're, you know, going against a complete can who can't stop anything you're doing and you're just being ultra conservative. Um, hence why when Khabib went against strikers, by the third round they were defending takedowns, if not winning the round in the cases of Conor McGregor or um, Edson Barbosa. Granted, Edson didn't win the round, but he was defending takedowns, hitting Khabib with spin kicks. You get my point. Um... And as for Cormier, he didn't stick with the wrestling. He tired himself out by headhunting. And, you know, Stipe made the great adjustment by going to the body. But like I, I, I said at the Lime Movement MMA betting show, I think, and I believe Dan was with me on this too, um, I think that Stipe was probably going to win that fight anyways. I think that, because I always talk about this analogy. That's why I wrote it into my breakdown as, as far as the uh, prediction. Shouts to the late, great Robert Fallis. He always talks about putting down the pack. You can always feel when someone puts down the pack. And the theory that I added onto it and talked to Robert about was picking up the pack when someone puts it down, how that's how that's so key, attaching onto his theory of feeling when someone puts down the pack. And you could see DC put down the pack already in that round. And with the body shots, it just compounded it and opened him up for the finish. Um... You know, and I don't know how to be so reliant on it. I mean, before Stipe threw 11, 30 body shots or whatever it was um, in their rematch to win, the most he ever threw was 11, and he only did that twice. Then it goes six was the third most he's ever thrown in a UFC fight clocked. He's not a particularly big body puncher. He doesn't even really go for the left hook as much as he should. Um... So I don't know if I depend on that adjustment, you know. Does Cormier, despite the eye poking, still do the extended hand traps? I don't think Herb Dean is refing, but I could see him doing it nonetheless. And the reason why I bring up Herb, not to pick on Herb, but because if you saw, I commented on a Composa tweet where it shows Cormier poking Stipe in the eye in round two of their second fight. And I wrote, that's clean, and Herb Dean. I wasn't trying to be funny. Like, that's an actual real-time quote. Like, Herb Dean's actually watching the action and goes, that's clean, which is troublesome. But it's not a surprise to me. Even before people started realizing Herb Dean or Herb Dean started going on this bad stoppage run and before people started realizing it, I was one of the first... The only thing I would really call out Herb Dean for was, you know... I don't know if it's a friends with fighters thing, so I'm not going to speculate that, much less dare speculate any other type of affiliations or correlations or common threads. But there's a reason, you know, so I'll keep it to the eye pokes because when I first noticed it was like for John Jones, 
um, John Jones made a fit about John McCarthy because John McCarthy was the only referee that, you know, he, all, you could argue that he could have and should have taken some points. John McCarthy was the only ref that um, really actively rep- tried to reprimand Jones for eye pokes. Whereas Herb, no matter who the fighter is, seems like I don't think I've ever... And granted, all refs don't do this enough. Barely any refs or times have been taking a point for it. So it's kind of unfair, albeit coming from a right place. But with Herb Dean's overwhelming sample size, it almost kind of condemns him or makes him more culpable for this criticism, which is he's never taken a point for an eye poke that I can recall, even a step further, willing to bet that he's never taken a point for an eye poke in the last five to seven years taking it even a step further, willing to bet, because I do not recall he has not given a serious warning where he brought the translator in, paused the action, took an extra time before the round. Um, you know, unless it's like, you know, he let the guy, you know, get away with multiple different fouls, and then it's like a cage grab, a, a low blow, and then it's an eye poke, and now he's overcorrecting the steering wheel. Like, aside from that scenario, where his hand's almost forced, which sadly is most refs. Again, not to pick on Herb Dean. But there's a reason why uh, John, I think, and Bet requests. I know he at least a couple of fights he's publicly requested or admitted to Herb Dean for that reason. Because Herb does not fucking call eye pokes. Long-winded tangent, but I wanted to bring that up in relation to, I don't think Daniel Cormier is going to do his extended hand trapping or stop doing it. However, I'll be curious if Stipe goes back to his inside parries, uh, where he does the inside parry right cross counter. It's something he's always had, but he he, he didn't do it as much, and they started doing it like mid to late in their second fight to counter that, and it worked really well and fed nicely in those body shots. Whereas Cormier, if it, even though he's saying he's going to wrestle, and I don't doubt it, but while it's on the feet, I'm going to be looking for him to do leg kicks. Um Cormier's always had a really underrated kicks. And against a guy who's long, switch stancy, and throws kicks to the knees like Jones, I guess I can forgive him for not throwing them as much as I wanted him to. But it's tough with this fight because it looks like he's trying to replicate what JDS did to Miocic's legs. In the first fight, he lands like six hard leg kicks in the first round before finishing them. And then in the second fight, he's on pace to do the same. He may throw seven, or but he definitely lands six in the first round again. And then it trickles off. He throws like two in the third or something like that, or in the second. But yeah. And he got, he got headhunting, right? So I wonder if he goes back to that. However, I do think he's going to wrestle. Uh, he has the intention. The small cage will force it. And the small cage favors him. You know, it doesn't favor a footwork fighter like Stipe. Or, you know, one of the few heavyweights that can competently fight going backwards, I should say. However, back to my original point of wrestling yourself into a hole, which we'll talk about again on this card. Um, I could see Cormier doing that, you know, again. So it could work for him, but in the big picture, it might work against him. It might work for him in the battles. But if he doesn't have the cardio and the defensive, or much less just in general discipline overall, over 25 minutes... And he may just fight himself into a hole again. Um, and that's what I'm suspecting. I got Stipe by late knockout. Not playing this. Uh, I'm rooting for Cormier on the inside. You know, you just want the fighter to have a fairy tale ending since we don't get those in the sport. And I know uh, Cormier gets a lot of hate lately, and a lot of it I definitely can't uh, defend when he's like, you know kind of overly towing the company line and, and talking about fighters' rights and pay. I definitely get that part of it, but like as a, as a human being, when you strip that stuff away and kind of look at who he was, as who he's always been to the media and people that I know or my very brief interactions with him, dude, this guy is a, a quality human being. He's gone behind the scenes to do a lot of stuff for people um, and not publicized it. Um, just want, you know, so for everything he might look like he's doing to be a company man, 
I can tell you there's a huge track record way before any of this, and I'm sure that he still does. Um, that goes undocumented, or at least from him. Um, he's a good human being, so. Yeah, but I'm picking Miochik. Who's probably a good dude, too, although he seems just like a sore winner and loser. Which, being a sore loser is fine, I guess, but being a sore winner is says something, too. But, hey, man. Heavyweight MMA, baby, or MMA in general. Um, Sean O'Malley, my, <laughs> minus 265. Marlon Vera, comeback plus 225. Yeah, speaking of... <clears throat> speaking of, uh, uh, you know... Rooting the, secretly rooting against my picks, which is the tweet I sent out earlier. This is another example of it. You know, I came in wanting to pick and play uh, Marlon Vera, and good luck to those of you who are playing him. He is definitely the value side. But I ended up picking Sean O'Malley. Basically, Vera will fight to his opponent's level, which isn't a bad thing if O'Malley is as good as, you know, people are hyping, which is what I hate about this fight, and I hate about picking the hype guy, because even if I'm skeptical or picking him for good reason and still skeptical, healthily, it's, you know, you get a pick like this wrong and it's just all, your hype boy didn't go, your Connor boy didn't fan. And it's just, oh, Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to see that anyways, even if it's not directed at you, which is just always, you know, not exactly fair to the fighter, although I don't really sympathize <laughs> with John O'Malley. Uh, I'm, not hate, I'm not a hater, uh, but at the same time, I'm not a fan, you know. My co-host Dan was bringing up that he believes cross line with the Ecuador, you know, dying of the hair. And I totally am on board with people who think that nationalities, religion, family members are off limits. I don't disagree with that. Um, I just think that, A, the only person it's really going to hurt is O'Malley. Because even though Vera's playing it cool, which is good and a good sign if you're a Vera supporter... You know, it's going to motivate him, and he has sometimes slow starts, which is another reason why I picked against him here, although I don't see O'Malley finishing him. I actually think O'Malley can do it by decision. Uh, and then B, uh, and again, I'm a fan. Of, I'm, again, I'm rooting for Vera. I'm still a fan of him. I don't give a crap. I don't think uh, – I'm not as sensitive as it seems, folks, uh, and I try not to be. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I'm not exactly going to be sympathetic uh, at the same time to what O'Malley's doing. To a guy who, uh, you know, <laughs> was, uh, you know, tweeting, fuck the China man. And I know there's an English thing and, you know, maybe it's more accepted in his country. But if you look at the bigger picture, all that kind of says is that, okay, so anti-Asian sentiment um, extends beyond America, which, by the way, folks, it definitely does. Um, uh, <laughs> it's probably why, you know, it's probably why, you know, like my mom all says, the Chinese always get along with the Jews really well. They're very family-oriented from how they eat, how they do business, uh, etc. And they also seem to be hated wherever they go to. So maybe that's why I always love my brother, my Jewish brothers and sisters so much. But um, but yeah, like uh, you know, the, the, you know, with with anti-Asian sentiment at a high, <laughs> I'm a little less. I'm not, again, I'm not condemning uh, Vera, and neither should you, folks. I'm still a fan of Vera. I'm rooting for him here. At the same time, I'm a little less sympathetic to people spreading the anti-Asian sentiment when our own uh, leader-in-chief is uh, doing quite enough of that on his, on his own. So, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry, folks. I got asked if I eat dog the other day. Like, it was like, I haven't heard that shit since grade school. Like, man, I'm not a big JRE listener these days, but 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 David Cho, he does as crazy as he is, he speaks to... Uh, he speaks to a, a segment of us, and he's been hearing shit. To, like people are doing the slant eye things to him. Like all this shit, like we had to deal with in like the '80s and '90s, have been coming back. It's been not fun. <laughs> Sorry, I know this podcast isn't about that. Pushing forward, um, and again, don't condemn either of these guys for any kind of warfare. This is, dude, it's fighting, man. It's cage fighting, and Marlon Vera's stuff was kind of fresh after the cage fight. And I'm not making an excuse for him again. Just explain kind of what was wrong with it. But when your emotions are high and there's head trauma, like it's not the best time to be interviewing these fighters. Um, so not that it's an excuse, but try not to condemn them for their actions immediately after these fights. 
Uh, O'Malley, obviously, this isn't an immediate after reaction. He's trying to play mental warfare. I don't think it's working, though. Um, that being said, I still like O'Malley from a technical perspective. Um, I, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's like he's the classic guy. It's like, oh, if he gasses, he push him past the first round. But Terry on where, and I know he lost his fights after, and he had deceptively tough matchups, man. Um, but Terry on where was a great test, man, and he, you know, volume boxer. Um, not as much a ground test as we want to see, and that's it's kind of the sad part about Cheeto. I don't think it's as much of a ground test as we're gonna like it to be. Um, but we saw O'Malley get tired. We saw that point where he could quit. And if you go to his amateur career, we actually did lose. Excuse me. You see O'Malley quit bad. But that was his amateur career. He was like 18 years old. And granted, he's still just a kid, but I think that was like five or six years ago or something. And um, and you see him... And, and again, you got to reward people for going through adversity, folks. It so, means so much more to me, at least. And when he hits that second round, you see him kind of like go, oh, crap, I, I got to pick it up. And he does pick it up. He does pick up the pace and match the third round. Um, and, yeah, he loses the third round to Andre Sukumta, who I picked to beat him. And perhaps if it was any, you know, no offense, Andre, he'll admit to this too, one of the poorest fight IQs in that fight for sure. You know, if it was anyone else, they probably could have took advantage of that broken foot. But it was a broken foot. It wasn't his cardio that was abandoning uh, abandoning him. Um, and, you know, he gets out Teco Quinones, who's already been stopped. You know, and Eddie Wineland, who, you know, has retired and been stopped and dropped and done already. So I get tempering the value on those. But if you're watching what this kid's doing, I mean, his... He really does understand distance and angles, MMA angles. Uh, no, but he understands distance really well. You know, his inside slips, you know, uh, working off of jabs, just really advanced reads, um, at least for a kid his age, in my opinion. And his grappling is getting better, too. You know, he doesn't seem like he's a fish out of water. He's doing really subtle things that I like, like wrist control and cross-wrist control uh, to get up. You know, reaching across, pinning the mist to the, uh, the wrist to the mat as you turtle and tripod up, which helps protect you from getting your back taken. And whether it's training with Taquino Mendez, which he has been for this camp, which is going to help for his submissions, growth, and defense, or just that installed that I talked about um, get-up game that the MMA lab instills into most of their fighters pretty well. Uh, O'Malley seems to have that. And... Furthermore, even though you know O'Malley also has a really good footwork awareness of the cage and, and does things there that a lot of advanced fighters don't do, and that's going to come in handy because he's going to be in the small cage, which you think would benefit Vera, who Vera doesn't always pressure folks. And even when he does, he's not always going for the takedown. The only reason why a takedown, a submission, or any ground fighting even happen usually is because the person either takes them down or when Vera finally decides to pressure after eating punches for a whole round, he will run, he will pressure forward, be effective, and the person will clinch up with them. It's only like I, I, there's maybe one or two since, um, since his loss to John Lineker. One or two times did he actually initiate the takedown without having the person initiate the clinch first. O'Malley doesn't initiate clinches much, folks. Um, and then when he does, it's literally the same takedown that he attempts every time. It's from the clinch, so it's not a reactionary takedown. It's from the clinch after they've already established the clinch and have been static there for a minute, and it's the same takedown. It's an outside trip from the same side, his right side. You don't think O'Malley is training for that in his uh, makeshift cage, which is the exact same cage, smartly? You know, is the small cage. Um, and again, I'm rooting for Vera here. So these are things I'm looking for, you know. And he's working with Daryl Christian in the San Diego area, who's good MMA wrestling from the clinch. And he's working with Jason Perillo, who I love, who's going to really help shore up that boxing, um, which, again, you look out for those left hooks to the body. The left hooks to the body and the leg kicks for O'Malley, or for Vera on O'Malley is going to be what's going to have the most purchase for him. And I just feel that he's going to have to hurt him with one of those weapons before he's able to get a scramble and a submission. I really have a hard time seeing Vera 
consistently or did it depend on him taking this fight down, making that effort? And even if he does, I have a hard time seeing him get him down, hold him down, much less submit him soberly. He's going to have to wear him down and hurt him first. So, again, O'Malley's trash talk might have snapped Vera, who's been quietly better from his slow starts if you've been paying attention. Uh, Vera could get it done, folks. If you're going to play Vera, you know, I, 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 I sprinkled a really small, like, children's amount on rounds two and three. And then um, I really don't stand to win a lot, but I just found an angle with the way the odds were. Plus, And then I kind of hedged out by O'Malley by decision, so I guess the only way I'll lose is if O'Malley sparks him. <laughs> I just don't see that happening despite me picking O'Malley. But uh, there's not a, there's not value picking O'Malley even at minus 265, minus like the ridiculous 310 that he got up to. So anybody that grabbed Marlon at that price or even at plus 225, like Marlon just should not be north of a 2-1 to one underdog here. This should be closer to a pick em fight. But um, from the output to the wrestling pressure, I just don't see it enough of it being in his favor. Got to wait till he fights a wrestler. All right, uh, picking O'Malley. Do what you will, folks. Good luck to you, Vera betters. Um, next fight, another heavyweight affair. Jarzinho. Rosenstrach. Rosenstrach. Yes, Rosenstrach. And Roland Den's voice. What's left of it? Yes. Michael against Junior DeSantos. Plus 110. DeSantos there. Um, yeah. Um... I actually picked JDS here. Um, I'll probably sprinkle him because he's a dog, but it's dangerous, you know? This is the small cage, and what does JDS do? He backs himself into the fence and gets hit a lot. And Rosenstrach can counter or come forward. Um, the problem is for me is that JDS is A, looking like he is... Um, you got to be on the sauce if you want to be the boss. Uh, it, it, sorry, <laughs> I don't know why that... Uh, he looks like he's really worked on his strength and conditioning, which I've talked about, you know. Not throwing shade, uh, just to, to do, uh, you know... Not to sound like uh, Morrow and uh, Boss Rutten early pride commentary talking about Brazilian top team, but American top team is really good with their strength and conditioning. <laughs> um, they're fighters, I should say. And uh, DeSantos looks just in prime form. And looks can be deceiving, right? But, however, um, DeSantos did do this one time before after a skid that we were all were writing him off on against a much more dominant guy that was going to pressure him into the fence that was much more durable, had much more skills, was much more reliable than Rosenstruck. That was Ben Rothwell, who was on quite a run and also had a history with upstrength and conditioning himself. Sorry, folks, that's just on the record. Uh, and I like Big Ben, just saying. Um, and Dos Santos, by some reports, you know, and and the eye test came in healthy, that fight. And that's what it looks like in this fight, folks. But also, Rosenstrach suffered a deadening KO. You know, that was the thing. He had a weird sample size, you know. What's it like? And granted, it was Ngannou that deadened him, but if it bleeds, we can kill it, right? The man can be knocked out. In a flash. And um, that was only like three months ago. <gasps> Excuse me. Like three months ago, folks. It's the 14th. Fight's going on the 15th. Yeah. That was only three months ago he got dead in, folks. Um, I don't like that. And he's been doing pretty much back-to-back -back camps. Yeah, I don't like that. Um, so, yeah, uh, we'll see. The leg kicks and the leg kick returns will be interesting how that plays, but especially because I think these guys are going to be feeling each other out for the first. Uh, however, I'm actually not of it. I joked with Dan, but I, I sprinkled on the draw here for fun because this is a fight, too, where I could totally see Rosenstruck like fucking up Dos Santos, then Dos Santos just back boxing his way back into it. Or something like that. Or they just stare at each other and you can't really score the rounds and there's a 10-10 in there because both guys like to counter and we essentially get um, Derek Lewis first, Francis Ngannou too. Um, I would not be surprised. Uh, which is why, you know, <laughs> uh, 
I may or may not have sprinkled on that on for that and the next fight here. So yeah, that's a that's a weird fight. Be careful with that one. Murad Devalashvili minus two forty five. John Dotson plus two oh five. This fight opened I don't have a problem with Devalashvili. I just think he should have been more in the range of like minus one fifty to minus one seventy in which he opened. Um, albeit money, that doesn't surprise me that money came in on him. Anybody, you know, that looks like they are born close to the country of Russia and wrestle, we almost overcorrect the steering wheel and overinflate. Um, even guys that I'm on board with, like Jemayev, right? It's like, still, it's like, okay, I'm on board too, but relax, folks. Um, and we got to be careful about that. And Marab is great. He's got a great gas tank and... But whether you're thinking about from MMA standards, like, okay, this guy's either bound for a loss or if he's as good as everybody's building him up to be, that's problematic for Aljo, who's still trying to, you know, get his, you know, title shot and gold around his waist. Aljo, obviously the worst, probably worst matchup for him stylistically if they didn't train. But if you ask yourself other than that, this guy's got to lose some time. He's got to have a bad stylistic matchup at some point, right? That's at least what I ask myself when everybody is overhyping someone. I go, okay, who's the person that's a bad matchup for them? Again, if it bleeds, we can kill it. This is MMA. Every, we should know by now, folks. Like, nobody is impervious in this game. Everyone's got a bad kryptonite. And assuming that Marab, you know, since Marab doesn't have, still have the great finishing or control, um, and he's a judoka who learned to wrestle and gets after it that way, Perhaps a guy who can wrestle as, as an athlete can counter-wrestle. Southpaw, counter-striker, veteran with, with devastating proven power, proven product, with his faults attached, but proven nonetheless. And John Dotson could be a stylist of kryptonite. I mean, that shouldn't surprise any of us. If not, like I told my co-host Dan, Pedro Munoz probably his worst matchup with the guillotine and the gas tank, which is where Dotson is suspect, right? Even though Dotson's never been stopped or submitted, mind you, throughout his 16-year career, throughout multiple weight classes, facing the best. Yes, he has had suspect pace issues, right? Which is probably why he can fight at a frustrating pace. John Dotson is a frustrating style. It frustrates me despite being a fan of Southpaws. I'm not the biggest John Dotson fan. I look for opportunities to fade this guy, which is really weird why I'm picking him here. I mean, look at my picks, folks. Like, I'm not only picking against guys I like for the most part, for the most part, I'm, I'm picking against the, the fighter more capable of pressure. I'm picking guys who dance on the outside like O'Malley um, or, or, or not dance on the outside, but, you know, Miocic in comparison to Cormier, DeSantos in comparison to Rosenstruck, Dodson in comparison to Davalishvili. Like, this is not like Dan Tom, much less Dan Tom's picks in the small cage. So I'm scaring myself here, folks, so don't, don't worry if uh, you're not feeling me on any of these. I don't blame you. I'm just being honest, as per usual. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think Dotson could be a stylistic bad matchup. And, and that kind of became apparent when, even though Gustavo Lopez is more cre better than most of you guys realize or is giving credit to him, um, you realize that when he faced a short-notice opponent um, who is gassing out, right? Uh, and what Marab does, and especially more scarily in his relevant fights, when you want to see him getting better, like, whether Marab pushes a guy up against the fence, gets denied the takedown, which, guy's defending him. He's not indefensible, folks. It's his chaining. Or he actually gets the takedown, but guys get up, which happens more than you think, folks. Or he rocks the fighter and strikes them. He is separated pretty much on his own will. And not only does he do that after letting fighters up, because... His jiu-jitsu and finishing and positional control is not where I and many would like it to be, especially for as much hype as he's getting, right? Not only does he let people back up, not only does he willingly separate or allow separations a lot easier than you would think, he's one of the only fighters I've seen do this, much less do it repeatedly, which he has. He will literally back himself up from against the fence, even after he just hurt the guy and took him down. And he will literally back himself up into the cage. And then allow a reset. You're going to allow that for a guy like John Dotson and give him another chance to catch you coming in to pull some veteran shit that he did against his last fight against uh, Nathaniel Wood? It's not a good idea. Now, this does feel like a true outcome fight in the sense that it's John Dotson knocks him out, 
because Davalashvili's been hurt. He's also been tired, folks. Like, he's been dead tired, too. Like, he recovers because he's a madman. He'll keep coming. But he's been tired, rocked, and even knocked out. I mean, he knocked himself out in the Ricky Simone thing. It wasn't even the guillotine. The guillotine put him out, too, actually. He went out at least twice. But he actually knocks himself out in the takedown, if you watch. He he gray-mainered Rob Eberson himself. I mean, that's the potency this guy has for being knocked out. He can knock himself out, folks. Um... So it feels like kind of a true outcome fight in that sense because John Dotson, even though he showed that he could still get finishes in the beginning of the third round, albeit that might have been his last pocket, and albeit Nathaniel Wood, despite his best efforts, isn't going to put the same pace that Davalos really is going to put. But yeah, it does feel like you know by the mid-second round, if Dotson hasn't made a statement, um, it's, it's pretty much a bad night for him, right? However, I actually think because of Davalos Vili's suspect like separations and Dotson's ability to hurt him and counter wrestle really well still. Um, because the only person who's really been able to control Dotson, like no one's been able to meaningfully take him down. Like again, if you're a stats guy, which I'm not, you gotta be careful about going off that. You're just basing your entire argument. Um, you gotta be careful about that folks. You'll be like, Oh, Dotson's been taken down. Like, yeah, go watch it. How many of those were meaningful, meaningful takedowns? It wasn't until almost getting knocked out a couple times until Demetrius Johnson, one of the best pound-for-pound fighters and best clinch fighters in the sport, figured out that he had to use his myriad of clinch entanglement strikes and trips and uh, an arsenal that Devalish really doesn't have, a strategic wherewithal that Devalish really doesn't have, um, to figure out he had to do that for five rounds and repeat, wrench wash and repeat for the next fight. I I don't think Devalish really can do that. And if he does, hats off to him. I just don't think we should be as confident as a minus 245. So even though my pick was Dotson and I wasn't initially going to play it, seeing money continue to boost him over north of a 2-1 to one favorite? I don't know about that. It's almost out of principle. I feel like I got to play him here. So I threw a unit on Dotson. Um, you know, he, he, he even, you know, you look at what he did to even his losses. Like, you look at who he lost to, A, not to do that lazy argument. But it's true. It was the freaking champ now champ Peter Yan who he dropped. And if you look at that fight, aside from his crazy hair, like John Dotson had a had a belly, like he was probably in the worst shape he's ever been in. Then you look at his fight after that, Nathaniel Wood. He's 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 in shape again. Like every fighter say they're back, but like I actually believe it. He looked like he was in shape. You go to his social media through the pandemic. He's in shape. His training, you know, his training doesn't look too hindered down there. Training with a bunch of, uh, you know, wrestling studs. Even brought in uh, Henzo Gracie, jiu-jitsu black belt, uh, national champion judoka, which again, Marab's a judo guy, um, to make sure he's prepared for Marab-style takedowns and grappling. So John Dotson getting frustrated in his fights is something I don't like and a reason why I I usually fade him. So you think that I would here against a high-paced guy, but Marab still has to show me some things. And at a two-to-one spread... I'll pay the price to, to, to find out. All right. Vince Pichel minus 235. Jim Milasson plus 115. This is another one where I don't know what the fuck was wrong with me, folks. This was, it must have been a classic Dan Tom overcorrecting the steering wheel. I don't know why I picked him against Roosevelt Roberts. Maybe it was because he was both tall and seemed like he had ground skills, but then Roosevelt Roberts like falls to his back off balance, off a kick, which was silly, and then makes like hella Ricky moves by leaving his arm in. And then putting his arm in further, uh, and then snapping back up like he re- made repeated mistakes. Um, that being said, you know I shouldn't have picked Roosevelt, and Roosevelt shouldn't have been favored. Jim Miller wins those type of fights, and for that reason, you could play him here. However, Vince Pichel, I actually went through and watched like all of Vince Pichel's fights for this for the, for this because um, I know Jim Miller obviously. And I was impressed, man. Like, Vince Bichelle is just it's like a weird sample size. He's, he's definitely got that intangible, like, you want to bet on because he's just that crazy. From hell, Bichelle. And, and, you know, um, he's a crazy guy, but it's, he's endearing with the craziness and the openness he has. And I listened to some of those um, shouts to that. Was that comedian? And they roasted. He had a podcast, or he still has it, I think. But, yeah, listen to an episode where Vince was on there. Listen to some crazy stories that guy shared. Um, so part of me always roots for him to do well, but he's got underrated ground and, you know, he's quietly improved his stand up. you know, works with Steve Cunningham, 
his longtime coach Peterson, of course, for grappling, MMA. And he makes really smart moves. You know, he did the John McCarthy school for a while. You could tell he makes really smart moves in there. Um, however, even with his advancements in, you know, playing the outside, showing the counter, advancements in striking, he's still a little herky-jerky, which is fine. But what the problem is is that his, his style seems to be rooted still to having that ability to grind and grapple in his back pocket, which is probably why... His losses come to people who can both wrestle and or grapple better than him, right? Those are his harder fights, too. Um, even Neto BJJ decided to strike, but it was his takedown defense, right? Gave Pichelle problems and made him strike. And the problem is, even though Neto BJJ looks the part and Ninja Kawani looks the part and actually has the Muay Thai accolades in Ninja Kawani's case, neither of those guys were counter-strikers. Ninja Kawani um, lost all of his fights since then. Um, and it was just, he also got fouled up front. Like the, like, uh, yeah, I poked in bad low blow, both bad fouls in the first round, like first half of it, taking nothing away from Pichelle. You know, he fought a strategic fight, but in these fights, like that he did win by decision, like there were fouls, there were guys falling off the cliffs. There were certain key exchanges going his way and credit to him and his coaches. I think that Peterson coach of Pichelle is a smart guy. And he really directs Bichelle smartly. So I'm not taking away credit. But if you look at the big picture, like a lot of shit had to go right for him to get his four decision wins or whatever he does have. So even though the angle here is that if Bichelle doesn't finish him, find a finish on a shot Jim Miller if you're assuming he shot, which I guess I don't blame you, although I don't think he shot yet. I think that Lyme disease explains a lot, although he's an older fighter and should be treated as such. He is in the December of his career, obviously, and Jim Miller should be treated as such. That said, I don't think he shot for what that's worth. Um, but I do get the angle, which is true, and Jim Miller admits it himself. His cardio has struggled. No excuses for that, even though he kind of does have one with the Lyme disease. Jim if he, uh, uh, appears to be, um, you know, even kind of suffered a second wave of that, but appears to be coming out of it. Even if you look at his social media, he looks in better shape. Granted, to his own admission, it's because he stayed in shape coming off of a fight. He didn't have to take damage off of, so that was really smart for him. Whereas Pichelle's coming off over a year layoff. So Miller will be the fresher guy, and he has the advantage there. That being said, I'd be careful, as I'm not fading Pichelle for this reason, because whenever Pichelle actually has had layoffs from two to three-year layoffs, he actually comes back and wins those fights. Um... But yeah, he is coming off over a year layoff, whereas Jim is fresh, looking healthy, and uh, relatively injury-free, as injury-free as you can be at that point of his career. So back to my another point about not facing a counter-striker. He's never faced a counter-striker or you know, very few good strikers. And as far as southpaw goes, he's only faced one UFC-level southpaw, if you want to count John Coffer's 0-2 getting finished um, cup of coffee in the UFC. The guy, by the way, is more of a grappler. It is not a counter-striker, much less a striker. Um, and that was the one southpaw he faced, and that was a two-round exhibition on Tough, like eight years ago. That's the one southpaw he faced. And now this fight was announced on a week and a half notice. I think these guys had like a two weeks notice, but that's like what? One week of training and another week of a weight cut? So Michelle's got one week to train for a southpaw, and he hasn't faced one in eight years. You know, I don't know. Most of his training looks like strength and conditioning. I don't know how many of his training partners are Southpaw. And now he's got to face one of the most fully a fully fledged one, one of the most proven ones, a guy, is re a guy who is ready. Like, I actually think Jim Miller can piece him up on the feet. And Miller's either going to have a lot of success and then maybe gas him out, and then he has to survive like a a la Pat Healy scenario, right? Or... He has good success, and moderate to really good success, and it forces a shot out of Bichelle, and Jim Miller is able to guillotine him. Bichelle is good at getting up and protecting his head, but he does turtle. Uh, now he's good at scooting guys off the front of his back, which you could do for Miller, which then he'll have to be worried about the armbar that Miller transitions to. But the point is, he's going to be playing with fire because he turtles. You know, turtles bad for guys against against guys with good front headlocks and back takes. And Jim Miller checks all those boxes. And Jim Miller is a different level of black belt. I mean, he submits black belts. You know, it's a normal thing for Jim Miller. 
So as underrated as Bichelle is, he's not the better mat wrestler or grappler, and I don't think he's the better takedown wrestler either. Uh, albeit, you know, defensively, I know Jim relinquishes a little too much. But yeah, for those reasons, including out of, you want to talk about a principle, I don't think Jim should have been favored as high as the opener, minus 180. I personally would have lined Jim Miller in the minus 150 to minus 130 range. But seeing him get bet all the way to plus money, trending plus to plus 115, that forced a play. And I know I'm biased, so temper, temper it, but it did make the sheet for that reason, folks, out of principle. So one unit on Jim Miller. Uh, I think he can win a dogged decision even, but uh, I think he can find the submission as well after hurting Michelle. Livia Souza, minus 160, Ashley Yoder, plus 140. Um, I actually, this is the last fight I did tape for. Um, I, I did tape for other fights too, coming up, I guess, but... Uh, peeling behind the curtain. I had a listener. I don't know if his name is Bill or not, but thank you, sir. I'm going to call you Bill. Um, he is driving this morning, perhaps listening to this, uh, to place a bet out of state. Some of y'all have to do that. And uh, he wanted to know about this fight, so I wanted I wanted to give him a good answer. I did in the DMs. Um, and, and again, I'll reiterate the bill, whatever it is. You guys be careful, as I said to everybody, you know, uh, for what you play and stuff, especially in these ladies' fights. But um, I don't, again, playing against the line movement isn't a, isn't a bad thing. And playing the favorite isn't actually playing against the line movement because the lines come down um, quite a bit. I think Souza opened as a near 2-1 to one favorite, and perhaps you shouldn't have been that high. And money came in on Yoder, so I get from that perspective, but not to the extent of pushing her down to 160 or below. So a minus 160 is an entry point for a favorite if you really want to play that. Um, if I do, it's not going to be a ton because I don't normally play a lot. But uh, as far as analysis goes, yeah, I think Souza is more skilled in every area. Um, Yoder is a is a legitimate brown belt, but Souza is a legitimate black belt in judo and jujitsu. Having a bunch of qualifications for that, as well as other things, as I tweeted out, she's you know hot dog eating contest and Counter Strike player, which you know scores points with me. Counter Strike. Shouts to Magic MMA tweeting at me saying, uh, Livia Souza is an opera. <laughs> and Ashley Yoder's bringing a 5-7 to the party. I don't know if it's quite that dynamic, but yeah, I totally see Ashley Yoder using the sleek and sexy 5-7. Yeah, easy, Dan. Easy, stay on target. But I, um, <laughs> now I want to do like a, a whole breakdown on Counter-Strike now. She's, she's like a camper, you know? <laughs> Low output counterfighter. It's like a camper. Tyron Woodley would be a camper. <laughs> rush, rush, rush. Um, but yeah, uh, Ashley Yoder, sleek and sexy, 5'7". Speaking of sleek and sexy, I think um, a lot of money and love comes in on Ashley for that. I have this theory that I was, that I was sharing on the DMs with a listener saying, um, I feel like if you're attractive, you're going to get line movement kind of come your way, right? And it's not crazy I mean shit money comes away via contracts right for these for these girls and good on them go get your money Yoda seems like a sweetheart and a good looking girl I'm definitely a fan easy Dan stay on target um, so I'm not hating folks believe me I'm not hating fan of Yoda we get it Dan creep uh, easy uh, <laughs> but no no no. it feels like people will like that'll you know again betting with your heart and biases that's a bias too right that's a form of bias, and I feel like a lot of it's that um, as well, because you know the things you could the the, the things you could criticize Souza for is you know she's more skilled in every area, but like is you know fight IQ and pace management, right? But Yoder definitely has her fight IQ moments as well, and I would argue she has worse pace management. I mean, she gasses out hard. She still does. You see her go for that random Marcus round one. Like, she was on fumes for the rest of the fight, pretty much. And then, like, speaking of that fight, like, that was just so goddamn silly. Like, she's a... Like, Livia Susan may have just lost to a southpaw, but Van Buren has nowhere near the volume, power, style, or process that Yoder does. And she beat a southpaw prior to that. Uh, Souza did. So this is going to be her third southpaw in a row. 
So she's going to be well prepared for southpaws. And, you, and, and let's look at what kind of southpaw she's facing in Yoder. We'll just look at the Miranda Marcos fight. I mean, obviously you want the outside angles of southpaw. I'm a southpaw. I know that. It's important. It's not that it's not important, but the fact that they just both sold out for it were like mainly Yoder did because she was the one that kept repeatedly doing it. And, of course, Marcos was going to do it with her because Yoder was going to fight for outside position so much to where, like, the commentators were noting, like, what is the center of the octagon? Are they allergic to it? They kept running themselves into the cage. And I'm like, is outside foot position so important that you're going to run yourself into the cage against a wrestler who wants to put you there? So Marcos was like, okay, I'll do this dance with you. And then what does she do? Pieces her up against the cage and takes her down. Um, I mean, just silly stuff, man. I love Yoder, but I got love for Yoder, but that was just silly stuff. And even Yoder talks about how she always gets her left eye messed up, which is true. It's always getting cut or bashed up. And she even remarks about it in one of her fights. And what does Souza always throw? That right hand, man. She's not afraid to wing that thing, even when she's getting outstruck. She'll still wing and wing that thing back. So I like Souza here uh, at worst, slash, even though I say at worst, this is actually probably how it's going to go. It's probably going to be an ugly fight where you're still sweating because there's going to be some bad decisions made. There's going to be ugly scrambles. And if you're smart, you're going to know that the, you're going to be sweating because you're going to know that judges don't know how to grade these things and it confuses the hell out of them which is why I warn about female and flyweight fights being like heavyweight fights as far as uh, the swings of intangibles to the outcome. Um, but aside from that, Souza should be favored. I'm probably going to sprinkle on her, especially if the price keeps going down. Definitely good luck to those betting her. Um, but yeah, that's the pick. All right, Herbert Burns. I can't, my highs are gone. I can't even do my, oh, I can't do that. Man, that's terrible. There's Daniel Pineda, plus 235. Um, money coming in on the underdog, but I don't think it's so much of a dog or pass here. Daniel Pineda's got experience in him. I think he could be a spoiler. Um, he's got a jujitsu black belt, but not all jujitsu black belts are made the same, and he can be submitted too, especially with his do-or-die style, and he is a do-or-die stylist. He has zero decision wins, so I don't know if that expert or the experience is really going to you know, favor him. The guy has trouble winning decisions or putting a legitimate process together. He's a very opportunistic fighter. Uh, whereas Herbert Burns, you know, again, he's, he's proving that he's more than a specialist. He can strike on the feet. He's got the power. He comes from a good camp. Um, but like I told my co-host on the Line Movement MMA betting show, man, do or die fighters, what's their worst matchups? Specialists, because do or die fighters can't stay in the zones very well. Um, they're usually not very good discipline. So they're naturally, even if they're trying not to, they're eventually going to fall into the zone of the specialist. And um, there I see Herbert Burns getting it done any way he wants, whether it's a TKO from positional back mount or um, strangling him. All right, uh, so he could be a parlay piece. I didn't really like a lot for parlays. I was going to look to maybe use him for a parlay piece. I don't blame you if you do, but I didn't. Maybe I will. Who knows? Verna Janadroba in parlay piece range, minus 300. Felice Herrick, plus 250. Um, not not sexy enough, too chalky to parlay Verna with Burns, but Verna's the pick here. You guys know I love for Felice Herrick. But the layoff, the injury... That's a lot. And although she's deceptively strong in the clinch, it's not where she wants to be with Verna. She doesn't want to be grappling with Verna. And I think Verna eventually gets her fight. So good luck if you're playing it. And good luck to Felice, but the pick is Verna. Probably goes over, which is cheaper than playing Verna for what that's worth for you ultra D-Gens. Um... Oh, I sprinkled on draws draws for Marab Donson as well, by the way, because I could totally see um, this fight coming down, like, you know, either Dotson getting a borderline 10-8 in the first and then the second's up for grabs, or Dotson winning the first and doing a lot of damage in the second, but the second's still up for grabs from wrestling control, and then Marab just, you know, fucking clinches and takes down and lays on a gassed Dotson for the third. 
people questioned if that could be a 10-8, and we had a controversial decision. That leaves us arguing. Um, yeah, where, where was I? Uh, TJ, downtown Brown, minus 150. Danny Chavez, plus 130. This is officially on my avoid list because I didn't really have time to study it, but I did kind of breeze through both their records, resumes, and my previous write-ups on Brown. And I actually don't blame anybody taking like a D-Gen shot at minus 150 or if it goes lower for Brown. Uh, I think he's got better wrestling. He's kind of like, he doesn't come from a wrestling base per se. He, comes, he plays football. But uh, but I think he wrestled a bit in high school. Uh, kind of like, uh, similar like a Maki Patolo. Except Brown actually like really like commits to jiu-jitsu. Brown is a brown belt. However, Chavez is a black belt, but he's a long-time black belt. I don't know how relevant those black belt is. He's been on the scene since I think like 2010. It's one of those regional guys that kind of pops up, you know? So good on him to get his UFC shot, but I think he um, gets decision by Brown for what that's worth. Um, I just didn't get to look into it enough to play, but I was thinking about playing Brown. I still may if that price drops. Also on the avoids list, Parker Porter. I think this line might have flipped. I don't know. Minus 120. Christopher Dawkins Is he related to Kyle? Plus 100. I know Kyle's brother. Um... Yeah, I, I don't even know. I'll take Dawkins, I guess. I, again, on the avoid list. I didn't even look into this fight. As well as uh, Kai Kamaka, minus 210. Tony Kelly, plus 175. I'll take the favorite Hawaiian. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's on the avoids list because I got nothing there. Okay, hopefully I didn't do too bad there on time 106. All right, let's get out of here. going to recap picks and plays, starting from the top. <clears throat> Taking... Miocic over Cormier. Good luck, DC. Taking O'Malley over Vera. Good luck, Vera and Vera Betters. Taking JDS and all his Justo Santos <laughs> over Rosenstruch. Taking John Dotson over Mirab Dotvalishvili. Taking Jim Milasan uh, over... Vince Pichel, I didn't get a chance to peruse uh, Miller's social media. I kind of stayed away from that. I'm scared now. Taking Livia Hanata Souza over Ashley Yoder. Dan Easy. Taking Herbert Hakao Burns over Daniel Pineda. Taking Verna Jenny Droba over Felice Herrig. Good luck, Felice. Taking TJ Downtown Brown over Danny Chavez. I used to like picking Chavez in Rainbow Six. Taking Christopher Dacus, I guess, over Parker Porter. <laughs> Taking Kai Kamaka over Tony Kelly. Um, that's on the avoid list. Dacus Porter, Kelly Kamaka on the avoid list. Brown Chavez on the avoid list. Props. Um, looking at Vera, round two, round three. Uh, O'Malley by decision, if you like O'Malley's side, plus 185. Uh, I'll sprinkle a couple bucks on draws for fun. I'm Rob Dotson, JDS, Rosenstruck, and DC Stipe because some men want to watch the world burn. But my for real plays outside of a sprinkle on JDS are Jim Miller at one unit plus 115, John Dotson plus 205. No parlays, although I don't hate Herbert Burns as a parlay piece or, um, or possibly Verna, but that's a little too chalky for my blood. Good luck to you guys on whatever you're playing this weekend, and always protect. Yeah, next.